0: about
1: to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast.
0: Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and we're picking up this evening with step number 15 on purity of heart and chastity, and tonight we are on page 147 at the very top of the page, with paragraph
1: 49. St.
0: John begins... Let us examine, measure, and observe during psalmody what kind of sweetness comes to us from the demon of fornication. And on the other hand, what kind of sweetness comes to us from the words of the spirit and from the grace and power contained in them. So sort of an unusual little saying, but John is telling us to be aware of the demon's actions, even even at the time uh, of prayer, for us and the kinds of sweetness that can emerge within the heart uh, in order to stimulate the passions. And it might seem to be a surprising thing that uh, the evil one can work with a kind of subtlety that even in times of prayer uh, can inflame the passions in one way or another in terms of how uh, even our emotions are stirred and the kind of sweetness That emerges within the heart uh, by engaging in certain kinds of prayers and so even something like the psalmody that we would be praying that uh the imagery that comes to mind uh that uh praying such things might potentially stir or could stir a kind of passion and so even as we are engaged in the psalmody which is a beautiful form of prayer and has been held up throughout the centuries as something that uh, we would want to engage in, it still is uh, something that uh, often does involve uh, uh, the use of discursive meditation, Uh, just the nature of the prayers themselves can enliven that for us. Uh, Whereas he says, and then on the other hand, what kind of sweetness comes to us from the words of the spirit and from the grace and power contained in them? So, what purely emerges from us, for us, uh, from God and the working of God directly within, within the heart, uh, perhaps without the aid of intellect or reason or imagination. Uh, and uh, uh, this is one of the reasons I think the, the fathers hold out before us uh, praying something like the Jesus Prayer. And fostering, again, a kind of internal stillness and silence, especially when it comes to one's thoughts. And so while praying something like the Psalms is certainly beneficial to us and can stir within us a greater fervor and desire for God. And so in this this sense, uh, praying the Psalms is always something that is good for us, that uh, even in the midst of them, uh, that the evil one can be active. And engage us in prayer and stir us up in in multiple different ways, our feelings, our emotions, and even bodily movements. John of the Cross, I remember reading in one of his texts, speaks of, you know, at times one becoming, uh, how do I put this, sort of aroused in the moment of contemplative prayer and that it can be sort of a disturbing thing if a person doesn't realize that on some level that can be sort of a, a natural, normal normal occurrence uh, or simply just the effect of our being a hu- human being having, a, you know, phys- on a physiological level that this could take place and not to become unduly disturbed by it or, or to make too much of it, not to overanalyze it. Uh, But John nonetheless would have us be aware uh, intensely of what's going on uh, within the mind and the heart and what could possibly be stirred. Anthony writes, uh, maybe the way theology of the body is approached by some teachers, the way physicality and theology are intertwined and appealed to by the imagination is a dangerous thing. I don't know. Well, you know, I know on uh, in some circles, there has been some concern about how the theology theology of the body is, t- is taught and the things that are emphasized occasion, and in particular the 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 physical side uh, of this. And uh, and so I don't know if in and of itself, it needs to be a dangerous thing. I think one has to do the work and to understand, I think what the Holy Father was, Uh, saying in his his writings, I'm no expert on the theology of the body, so I can't uh, unpack it uh, uh, as others might be able to do so. But I I know that it was one of the the concerns. And uh, uh, I, I don't think we would probably find this same kind of emphasis uh, within the Eastern writings, uh, that the uh, body is often something that is seen that is to be disciplined. and the appetites and desires that are associated with it are to be ordered in order that a kind of freedom might come to emerge for us, uh, that to and maybe this is where there might be a critique that perhaps to enter into, uh, uh, the reflections tied to the theology of the body without purity of heart or without engaging in the ascetic life uh, could, can, could open one up to certain dangers. And I think that could be true for a lot of different spiritual writings. Uh, I think there can be a neglect of uh, the ascetic life altogether in terms of, of the spiritual life. And I think that opens us up to a kind of vulnerability. Rory writes, is the silent stillness our spiritual existence? Silence stillness our spiritual existence. Well, I think it's where the fathers tell us that we are able to come to experience God uh, in a way that is lacking in any impediment Uh, that might arise because of our passions, uh, that is, uh, our appetites and desires that have not been ordered by the grace of God, or thoughts that become uh, a kind of distraction for us and turn us away from God. And so the fostering of the stillness, I wouldn't say is our spiritual existence, but allows us to encounter uh, he who is our, our life, and to be able to experience God, uh, perhaps as he is in himself, to have this encounter uh, with him, again, that knows uh, uh, of no impediment. Uh, now, again, contemplation is seen by the fathers as a gift. Uh, we can seek to prepare our minds and our hearts to purify our hearts in particular, in order that we might have the capacity uh, to discern the things that come to us from God with greater clarity. Uh, but contemplation itself is a gift. And so I would say instead of it stillness being our spiritual existence, I would say that it's the aim of the spiritual life because it brings about, helps bring about purity of heart. Uh, Cassian in his uh, earliest conferences speaks of uh purity of heart as being the goal, immediate aim, if you will, of the spiritual life. And that comes through the ascetic life, the stilling of the mind and the heart. And again, the ordering of the passions uh, or the appetites and desires toward God. And and so it's it's not as though, I wouldn't want people to have this sense that uh, the Eastern writers see imagination or reason as something that has no value. Or that is evil. But I think they also recognize the vulnerabilities that can come through them, but also the limitations of them. Intellect, reason, imagination can only take us so far in terms of our experience of God, of an experiential knowledge of God. And it's through this stillness that we are able to set aside all of the things that uh even the good things that uh, pr- provide uh, or present us with a kind of limitation, like on an intellectual level, again, for example, uh, what we can think about God, uh, even as, as perfect and beautiful as it might be, is always going to be limited by the finite nature of our intellect, that we are called, as it were, to walk by faith. And faith is, uh, as John of the Cross speaks of it, is a dark, obs- obscure knowing. It is a cognition. It's a, uh, of uh, a, an experiential knowledge of God, uh, a light, though, that he provides for us. But we experience it typically, St. John of the Cross says, as a kind of darkness because our faculties of intellect, reason, imagination become stilled at that point, the things that no limitation in order that we can see, perceive, and experience him through faith. And I think this is often uh, uh, the difficult thing, I think, for us as Christians at times uh, to understand because we often will think of faith in terms of doctrine or creedal, what we believe or what the church teaches. And this is certainly true. Uh, but I think when we look again to the saints, East and West, uh, they, they see it as something uh, far greater than that, that it, it is this uh, gift of God, one of the theological virtues, that is one of the virtues that have God as their end, as its end. And so uh, faith allows us to uh, come to experience God as he is. And that might be in this life, certainly dark and obscure, but nonetheless, God can give us the light that he desires to give us in that, to allow us to perceive, to understand what he desires, and that's for our salvation and sanctification. And there's something liberating about that, because I think we often get locked in a very notional understanding of our faith life, and even the life of prayer. Uh, where we feel that there has to be this constant activity of mind, and even discussion going on within our mind, or with God, or with each other. Whereas I think in the the East, we find a kind of prayer that's put before us that draws us into this silence and stillness, and sees silence as the language of God, the, the language of the kingdom, and something that we would want to foster now in order that we might be able to taste that which is the the sweetest of things that we can experience as human beings. I've often, and we'll just come back to it once again quickly, a Carthusian who said, uh, silence allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. So speak a word to our hearts that communicates something of himself or of what he desires us to understand, that we might not be able to articulate intellectually, but we might know and experience it through what he's revealed to us, that then opens up the path before us to discern where he's guiding and leading us. And so so often, I think, in our faith life, we are being guided by our own intellect, reason, and private judgment when we are seeking to discern uh, the path that we are to walk uh walk upon as men and women of faith rather than listening to god on this very deep level and having everything being ordered and directed toward him in order again that there might not be any impediment to our seeing or hearing what he wants us to see and hear
1: and if you remember the
0: one of the uh the f- faculties that the fathers describe is the the noose or the eye of the heart and uh, and so this is why purity of heart becomes uh, important in their writings that it's the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul that is to be purified through the ascetic life and through grace in order then that there might not be any impediment to our being able to contemplate things through the gift Of of faith through the virtue of faith. Louise writes Could reading the Psalms written by King David stimulate sexual appetite because he gravely fell in the sins of fornication and adultery and also murder? Yes, you know, I think that's what John is uh, getting to here that there are many different things and every emotion under the sun, every experience uh, that we go through as human beings that. Uh, are described within the Psalms, and I think this is what makes them so powerful for us as a form of prayer. They speak to every aspect of our human condition and often provide us with the words that we need to call out to God and uh, that we can take up these words uh, of David in the Psalms and make use of them in this very powerful way. And uh, uh, and so we find throughout the centuries, especially in the monastic life, you know, there were periods of time, and in some st- monsters t- still were, every psalm would be prayed on a daily basis. Uh, and uh, they the, the, can so form uh, the heart and so be so internalized that they really do shape a person's vision of God, but also provide this deep means of of calling out to him. Uh, But again, uh, even in in light of this, uh, again, John and others would understand the limitations there. If anything, they would warm the heart. They would uh, foster a deeper sense of piety and devotion within us. Uh, warm the heart in such a way that they allow us then to enter into the prayer of the heart to move towards this greater stillness and silence where simply our love and our devotion is directed toward God. So they may provide us absolutely what we need, exactly what we need, but eventually we would move to a greater and greater stillness and silence.
1: Number 50, do
0: do not be ignorant of yourself, young man. I have seen men who in reality were moved by the spirit of fornication, pray with all their soul for their loved ones, while believing that they were fulfilling the law of love. And so uh, an individual, John is telling us here, can be very much focused upon the things of this world including one's loved ones and being, uh, and crying out on this very deep level for them, but it doesn't necessarily, and isn't necessarily a reflection of purity of heart, that one can be moved by the natural love for one's family members, and those who are closest uh, to us, to, to pray and pray deeply for them, especially when they are suffering, uh, but John is saying, uh, "We this in and of itself is not uh, an indication; it's not indicative of the presence of purity of heart." And so we have to be careful there, because he says uh, that they can be moved by the, the spirit of fornication in this. And so one might be praying even for one's beloved, and still have that being be driven. Uh, by
1: a, a deeper passion.
0: And, uh, you know, one doesn't want, I think, to uh, turn, you know, praying for one's loved ones into a bad thing or or certainly an evil thing. But I think, again, John would have us understand with a kind of perfect clarity that the evil one will will use even what is most natural to us, our, Deepest loves within this world uh, to stir our passions if he can, and so we have to be uh, aware of that. And you know, certainly, again, if we think of one who's uh, uh, in a monastery and who has stepped away from their you know family relations and uh, are living in this deep solitude, that the, the thoughts of them, <clears throat> you know, can be brought to mind in order to make one questions one's question one's vocation and uh, any number of things. And so uh, here John is focused on, you know, the spirit of fornication in particular uh, that often arises out of a kind of natural love and can be tied to it. But it can also be this kind of natural love can draw us in a number of ways away from, from prayer or purity of heart.
1: Number 51,
0: touch alone is sufficient for bodily defilement, for nothing is so dangerous as this sense. Remember him who wrapped his hand in his cassock when, when about to carry his sick mother, and deaden your hand to natural and unnatural things, whether your own or another's body. And so again, you know, for a monk living in the desert, where there has been this movement away from interaction with others. And uh, that one has to be careful of every sense. We're again in a constant state of receptivity and through the senses. And so John is saying here, the sense of touch is a very powerful thing. And uh, for those who are living in greater solitude and isolation, It could be even magnified in the sense of the lack of that in their life can make then the sudden presence of it become extraordinarily powerful, and so a desert monk would almost have to be far more guarded about that in regard to everyone around him, uh, simply because this is something that they have separated themselves from. Uh, Philip Neri, you know, again, who's this you know very joyful saint uh and, and but all, also was formed in this spiritual tradition uh warned the men in his community not to be sort of touching each other constantly uh, you know uh, i think there's a kind of rough housing that we are used to or kind of familiarity that exists in our day you know, hugging, embracing, touching, you know, in a lot of different ways. And again, I I don't want to demonize that or turn that into a bad thing. But again, I think what John is trying to draw our attention to here is the power uh, of these realities in our life. The sense of touch, as we know, can be the the most healing uh, kind of thing in an individual's life. If someone is ill in the hospital, elderly and you know the gentle touch of another or one who's experiencing depression you know it can be an incredibly healing thing and something that brings about a kind of connection a connection of love and affection Uh, but for one who's engaged in the spiritual battle it can also be a place of vulnerability uh, or where there isn't that kind of purity of heart And again, we we know that we live in a hyper-centralized kind of culture uh, where there is no sense of, uh, uh, you know, guarding the senses and uh, no sense, uh, I think, of uh, what would be prudent in that regard. And so I think we can take what John is saying here and say, okay, I, I understand this, that... The sense of touch is as powerful as any other uh, uh, place that we you know, re- receive things from the world around us, can speak to our imagination, our memory, uh, our minds in many different ways. Cindy Moran writes, I don't understand this about the man and his mother. Well, you know, John is putting forward here, I think an extreme example for us of the guardedness of a monk that even in terms of uh, family relations, that he's so removed from that, that uh, in facing the circumstance that he was so guarded and wrapped his hand in it. And we might say, okay, that, that is the far extreme out to the margins of this kind of vigilance that he's talking about. Uh, but uh, I think where where we want to be attentive to is simply the fact that, again, uh, our being in this constant state of receptivity. So guarding our sense of touch uh, especially in relationship to to others and even in, in, in a sense to ourselves too, privately, we have to be attentive to this, that we, Are human beings, again, these are very powerful feelings that uh, can arise from the sense of touch. And we have to be aware of that because the evil one is aware of it and can use it against us. This is why I brought up Philip Neary, because he is this, he's not prudish, but Philip Neary had this deep purity of heart from his earliest youth. And he knew how precious it was in the spiritual life and so guarded it and protected it. And and so, gave this similar kind of counsel uh, to his men living in community, uh, that they they would not be inattentive or see it as inconsequential, you know, how they engage each other physically. Uh, Rory uh, writes, are words, I'm sorry, are words a sense of touch? Well, words would, I think, be uh, another way where we are receptive uh, in this state of receptivity to what we hear. And again, that can provoke a lot within the mind and the heart. Uh, You know, if we say something to someone that is uh, harsh or pointed, mean or aggressive, we can give rise to anger within their heart. And so being guarded in our own speech is something very important, you know, in the sense of protecting somebody else and what's going on in their heart, uh, but also guarding and protecting what we listen to. I mean, if you listen to uh, somebody, I saw a comedian who was comparing, uh, there was something about that song, uh, uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside, you know, it's sung during the holidays. And uh, I I forget the reasoning behind it, but the radio stations weren't playing it for some reason or because it seemed to be suggestive. And he sort of compared that and the time it was written to what was the number one hit on the charts of the day and how terrible the language was. And he says there's this kind of disconnect that we have that we can be really hypersensitive to something like that uh, for what it might suggest. And yet, you know, things that are heard on the radio every day by even young children uh, can be something that lodges within the imagination memory as well as stir up the, the passions. So, you know, hearing what we see I think I talked to the group once when I had this opportunity for to go on pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Land and into Egypt. We had this good fortune on our way to the monasteries. We picked up uh, a Coptic monk who got on the bus to ride with us. And he was smiling ear to ear, so friendly. And he says, I wanna teach everybody here a song. And I thought, great, we're gonna learn some ancient hymn he's going, he's going to teach us. And he began singing, you know, be careful little hands what you touch. Be careful little hands what you touch. There is a loving God who sees what you touch. So be careful little hands what you touch. And he went through everything be careful little eyes, what you see. And I was thinking at the time, you know, I was like in my late twenties and I thought, Oh my gosh, came all the way to Egypt to be taught this kid's song, but it's, and I even wrote it, you know, I remember writing it down in my travel journal, you know, that of the time. And, but surprisingly it stuck with me over 25 years uh, because of what it was communicating, which is exactly what John is saying here. Be careful because in all these different ways, we again, we are in this state of receptivity and there is this loving God, but he does see all that goes on within our mind, in our heart. And so we want to be attentive in, uh, to these things in such a way that we live a God-pleasing life. And it's such a simple and beautiful little song to teach children, uh, one that doesn't give rise to fear or anxiety, but awaken, I think, uh, children and as well as all of us to this broader sense of the fullness of our humanity, that we, we don't live, again, the spiritual life only in our minds, you know, with our thoughts, But our whole self is involved in that relationship, but also our whole self is involved in the spiritual battle. And so we have to be attentive to all these things as having the significance that they do. Sorry for my terrible singing there. (laughs) Uh, Anthony writes, it's a sad reality that such a thing as incest exists. I guess the watchword is chastity or prudence, not focusing on so many permutations of evil that exist, right that and I you know I'm not even sure that John had that in mind uh, in what he's writing about here so much as what it might give rise to in the memory or the thoughts of a monk who again who has been without this you know uh personal contact with others in the depths of the desert And, uh, uh, but I think you can see how it could be used again by the evil one. Cindy Moran writes, my mother told us to remember that you can't unsee something. That's, you know, it's true. And I, I often think that we don't give enough attention to memory and imagination. That the things that we expose ourselves to, even if they become unconscious to us, in the moment, uh, they are still there. Uh, I've often mentioned in the group that Freud said, there is no sense of time in the unconscious, that everything that we've experienced and everything that's in the memory and imagination is there. We might not be conscious of it at a, give, a, given, at a given moment, but something could easily trigger it and br- bring it t- to mind. So think again, even just what I brought, brought up here, that song, and that bus ride, you know, it's something that took place 25 years ago, and it's only in light, it's not like I'm walking around every day thinking about this child song that a monk taught us 25 years ago. But whenever we are talking about the Desert Fathers, it touches that memory and brings it uh, to the surface, as well as imagination, you know, everything that was going on in that trip. and. Uh, you know everything that I was experiencing at that moment, and so your your mom's right. You can't unsee something. I think our greatest hope is in the grace of God, in the, the the capacity of and the capacity of that grace to transform even memory and imagination. That with purity of heart, the more that we open our minds and our hearts to God the more vulnerable we become to that love, the deeper the healing can become for us. And so even those memories and things in the imagination that perhaps also contain deep wounds within them, uh, there, can become, there can come great healing uh, through the grace of God and through entering into this the intimacy of love with him. That to make ourselves vulnerable to him in our deepest wounds uh, can, in fact, be something that opens us up to see something about God that we never would have seen before. What is that quote from Saint Augustine? Uh, in my deepest wound, I I saw you and I was dazzled. Does anybody know the the exact quote of that? Ren, are you are you here?
1: In my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me.
0: In my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. That would be a good uh, thing to memorize because I think we often think that the wounds of the past are forever obstacles to our experiencing the presence of God, His goodness, and love. And often they can be. These impediments to us because we uh, feel deep shame in the face of them, guilt, or uh, the anger and the wounds to, tied to things that we experience through abuse are so strong, so powerful, that it's hard to imagine anything possibly being able to break through that. And uh, and so this what August, Augustine experiences and what he articulates there is beautiful. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. And it, that can often be the case for us, where, you know, in our deepest fa- failures of this life, where we have feel that maybe things have come to naught because of what we've done or simply because of circumstances, of our life, of how things unfold, that our life loses meaning or value. And if in those moments we are able to open ourselves to God's healing grace, as it's described in these writings, that it can be precisely in the place that we think least likely to experience God and his love, that we come to experience it in the most powerful way. And it's not as though in this life, we can undo the things that have happened to us or undo things that people have done to us. But the moment that God enters into that, then those things cease to shape our identity. And it's often a very difficult thing, again, for us to imagine that because our wounds often become the lens through which we view ourselves and we view the world uh, because of, of the pain that's associated with them. Uh, but if a person is able to become vulnerable before God uh, with, these, with these wounds, then the, the, the depth of that healing can be extraordinary. And so even something like psychotherapy for the, the men or women of faith can be the, the most powerful thing, that there sh- should be this almost a greater capacity that we would have to enter into that experience if we are men and women of prayer. Because uh, as men and women of prayer, it already means that we have to let down our, our defenses, to uh, uh, that God sees us through and through. And as we enter into that relationship and as his light shines upon those wounds, we begin to experience less and less shame surrounding them and more and more of of his love and mercy and forgiveness. And so for those who experience deep uh, emotional wounds, uh, having prayer as a part of that therapeutic Work only deepens and intensifies it. In fact, this is what psychotherapy means: healing of soul. It's not healing of emotions or thoughts. It's healing of soul of, of really the fuller self. It's in our more modern times. I think we've uh, we've uh, altered the the definition of that word and the etymology of it. David writes, there used to be a long tradition of contemplating the five wounds. I found this extremely helpful to also sort out personal wounds. There's something strangely beautiful in overcoming suffering. You know, That's a wonderful point, uh, because throughout the centuries, so many of the saints have found that to be true. And I, I think the world and even maybe many modern Christians see that as a kind of morbid Uh, thing to do to contemplate the wounds of Christ as if we are are glorying in the wounds in and of themselves or there's a kind of morbid delight in them rather than seeing them as the the marks of love and having the same impact upon us as they had upon the apostles when Christ appears in the upper room and the first thing he does is he shows them his wounds and says peace be with you So the very thing that became in their minds uh, a source of uh, despair and shame and guilt, given their betrayal of him, suddenly become this source of hope and source of joy for them. And so over and over again, in all these appearances, uh, showing them the wounds in his hands, his feet, in his open side, having uh, Thomas places his hand in his open side. So this is a very visceral experience of that too, giving rise to this extraordinary faith, my Lord and my God. Uh, Philip Neri once said that, you know, as part of our devotion, that we should seek to enter into the wound in Christ's side and to enter so deeply in and through our prayer that we not, never find our way out again, that we never emerge from that wound, because it's by entering into it that we experience the depth of God's love. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I think we often lose sight of the meaning of of the the piety of the faithful and uh, the devotional life of the faithful throughout the centuries. And this was really something I think that the council calls was calling us to do, to look at these things in order to understand why we were engaging in these spiritual practices in order uh, that our experience of that then might deepen, that we might understand what Philip Neri was saying and understand it on an experiential level, what, why he would say that, uh, because we, we know he would have had to have done the same thing himself and found deep healing there. David writes again, uh, water from the side of Christ. Wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, conceal me. Do not permit me to be parted from you, right? The honor of Christy, Christi. Beautiful. And, uh, and so a source of, of hope and strength and healing for so many throughout the generations. And again, you know, I think it's also something that helps bring healing to all. Our, our senses as well if we are in this constant state of receptivity our focus upon these things uh, those things that are holy and that speak to us of divine love and, and mercy are also going to be, bring about a kind of healing uh, to our, our senses and how, how we use them a person who's meditating upon the wounds uh, constantly part, as part of their spiritual life is going to be less likely than to be willing to expose them, themselves that would corrupt their imagination and corrupt what is going on in their mind and heart. Any other thoughts before we move on? Lorraine writes, is there a third order for laymen that is mainly Eastern? Ah. Uh, you have me stumped there. Uh, I just entered into the Eastern Rite. Uh, I don't know if they have something like third orders. I think you know many people would become associated with monasteries when they live around them. But I think you know the, the spirituality of the East has a kind of homogeneity about it. There's a kind of consistency throughout the centuries and that uh, spirituality and spiritual path that is put forward that belongs not to religious but to all christians by virtue of our baptism and by virtue of the nature of our struggle with sin within the west we find arising specific charisms uh, that are tied to religious orders carmelites Franciscans, D- Dominicans, Benedictines. And it's typically people who are attracted to some element of that charism or of of the, uh, the spirituality of the founder of that order that will that they will seek then to become a member of a third order, you know of one living in the world but embracing something of the discipline of that particular religious community. Uh, So we don't find that too much in the East, just because of the nature of the way that they look at the spiritual life. Uh, Wayne writes, I belong to the Eastern Rite, and to my knowledge, there's not a third order in the East. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it either, because when one enters into the monastic life, uh, typically what is embraced is the the same from monastery to monastery in regards to the, the role with some variances but not necessarily, there isn't this focus upon personality as much as there is in the West. That that has been a very powerful thing, but there isn't like this practice of saints writing autobiographies, or like uh, an Augustine would have, or even more recent times, Cardinal Newman, his Apologia, or, or things such as like such such as that, you know, holding forward one's own internal life for others to read. I think there was this much more of a sense of that needing to be kept secret between oneself and one God, that it's more of a hidden reality and uh, that the spiritual life as a whole is what is passed on through the tradition. And so there there isn't uh, a focus on innovation. Uh, as there is in the West, or this kind of cre- creativity. There is like a holy genius that emerges uh, in certain generations that often does meet the times. Ignatius, uh, Teresa of Avila, Philip Neary, Camilla Stilallis, all of these emerge around the Counter-Reformation that were really essential for the revitalization of, of the life of the church at that point in the face of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but in the East, the real strength was found not so much in that, but, w- but in clinging to w- what was proven over the course of centuries as a path to sanctity uh, and purity, purity of heart. Okay. So hopefully that was helpful answering the question anthony writes the internet an internet search shows there are associates of monasteries right holy resurrection monasteries the sisters of saint basil these are answers at uh, bizcath.org right so those who would associate themselves with a particular monastery may go there for retreats and, and embrace something of their prayer role in their day-to-day life okay So number 52, I think that one ought not to call anyone a saint in any real sense until he has transformed this earth into holiness, if such transformation is even possible. Uh, And the footnote is his body. This is clay until this has been transformed by the grace of God, uh, until one has become has clearly obtained a level of purity of heart that one would be hesitant to give the label of saint. And in fact, it isn't something that should be given out easily until after a person has died. And even that's been the practice of the church, you know, that often generations will pass and a person won't be declared a saint. And, and even in t- uh, until God, in a sense, intervenes to make that uh, uh Known to the church through specific miracles attributed to, to a particular saintly figure, and so we should we have to be very cautious about that uh, because I think in our own day, people are often moved by what is it, it seems extraordinary, or 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 seems to speak very powerfully of the faith. And I hear all this discussion in recent years uh, about exorcism. And you know, in the past that was something that was very hidden, that every diocese had an exorcist, someone who was specifically trained in the right and would follow that right in a very specific way, and that there would also be kind of things that would be rolled out psychologically before it would, would be done. And now you have many exorcists coming out and talking about their specific experiences, books being written, movies being made. And I think there's a kind of danger to that. I don't think that this is meant to be sensationalized. Uh, the, you know, Certainly the church, and as we read in these texts, believes in the presence of evil and of demons and the nature of that spiritual battle. But if, there's this danger if we sensationalize it uh, then we, we lose sight of the spiritual warfare that we have to engage in and what that looks like, what the ascetic life looks like. And there's always that tendency that we have, I think, to want to leapfrog over you know, the more difficult things of ordering the passions and you know, a fasting, of developing the discipline of prayer, of being watchful of mind and heart. So be slow to acknowledge one as a saint and slowest most of all, in thinking about one's own progress in the spiritual life, unless there is this kind of purity of heart. 53, when we are lying in bed, let us be especially sober and vigilant because then our mind struggles with the demons without our body. And if it is sensual, It readily becomes a traitor. So when we lay down in bed and when we go to sleep is when we can also be very vulnerable. Uh, We become tired and so we lose that vigilance uh, and we lose also the help physically of making prostrations, standing at prayer, uh, engaging in other uh, physical means to help us be attentive and engage in that sp- spiritual battle and so as we begin to drift off to sleep and uh we can lose that vigilance and then he, he says our body at that point can be become a traitor that uh one can become aroused during one's sleep or half sleep and not have the vigilance of mind uh, to take hold of one's thoughts you know, that one can be almost in a dream, dreamlike state, twilight state, and so not have that vigilance. And so this is why the, the fathers would encourage, uh, you know, praying as one is entering into sleep, uh, in order to have the mind and the heart being directed toward God, uh, not not to be engaged as, as we often are, I think, in making use of uh, of, so, uh, you know, technology, of television, things that stimulate the, the mind and imagination and, and the senses. Uh, we should be attentive to these particular moments. The same thing, I think, upon rising in the morning. Uh, Philip Neri often, you know, for those who are part of the third, third order, one of the things that uh, was suggested was to rise in the morning to get out of bed and make a prostration down to the ground uh, in order to communicate to oneself and to god one's obeisance you know that one desires to begin the day in a spirit of obedience to god and the desire to do his will and so in, in a physical manifestation right from the first moment of consciousness uh to to become as vigilant as one can uh, some of the fathers would say leap from the bed in the morning as if it were a bed of coals, which has been always one of my favorites, because it's such a powerful image to think of oneself as lying in a bed of uh, of coals in the morning, not to linger there uh, in the comfort uh, of our down comforter, uh, but to leap from the bed in the morning, because uh, you know, in, in modern times, they call it the the what is it the the her- heroic moment, or what's the little phrase that they they use? But it's that uh, that first moment of the day, you know, to jump right in into prayer, not not to to linger uh, too long in in our sleep in our sleepiness, <clears throat> not to hit the snooze button. In other words. <laughs> Number 54, always let the remembrance of death and the prayer of Jesus be of single, being a single phrase, go to sleep with you and get up with you, for you will find nothing to equal these aids during sleep. So to allow the the very nature of sleep itself uh, be an image for you of the sleep of death. So to remind you of your mortality. And so to go to bed with this upon one's mind. And John has already talked about the remembrance of death, that one who remembers it uh, by the hour ceases to sin, that it it gives rise to this kind of vigilance uh, within the heart. And then of course, the constant uh, praying of the Jesus prayer in this single phrase Uh, that can become so deeply rooted that it follows us into sleep as well as follows you know so that when we are waking in the morning the first thing that is on our lips is that prayer and so that's when we know that the prayer has formed our hearts is when we're going to sleep with it and when we're waking up with it first thing in the morning Number 55, some think that battles and emissions during sleep come only from food, but I've observed that people who are seriously ill and the strictest fasters are very prone to these pollutions. I once asked one of the most experienced and distinguished monks about this, and the blessed man explained it to me very clearly. Emissions during sleep, said the ever memorable man, come from abundance of food and from a life of ease. They also come from conceit. When we pride ourselves that we have not been subject to these effluxes for a long time. And also they come from judging our neighbor. The last cases he added can happen even to the sick, but perhaps all three can. But if anyone is unable to find any of these reasons in himself, then he is indeed blessed to be so free from passion. And if this happens to him, then it comes solely from the envy of the demons. And God allows it for a time in order that after a sinless mishap, he may obtain the most sublime humility. So an interesting thing that, you know, one uh, this is again something that is minimized the idea that there would be a nocturnal omission as being any in any way tied to impurity of heart but uh, when if we've been if we've given our imagination over to impure things throughout the course of years and this is what fills the unconscious it's often with within our sleep that the mind is very active, and out of the unconscious things will emerge, including the things that we hold within our our memory that even took place many years ago, perhaps isn't a part of our life uh, where there might've been some sort of promiscuity at certain times or participation in in pornography. And so these things can emerge uh, within one's dream state and give rise then to certain dreams that then produce arousal and then omission. And so what John is saying is that, you know, the purity of art that we are seeking is not only on a conscious level, we are seeking to open our minds and our hearts to God as fully as, as we can, even the deepest recesses of our unconscious. So we, in our day-to-day life, avoid all of those things that would fill the mind and the imagination, and that would give rise to these such things. But we also enter into this deep prayer, fasting, uh, because one of the things that he says here is from overeating or eating rich foods or a life of ease. So we're not living the ascetic life, and so a soft life then can give rise to this as well, or conceit, pride, you know, thinking that one is beyond such things in one's life. And so one will often be humbled by this, even though there might not be direct sin uh, tied tied to it, of course, it still can emerge out of these memories from the past when we did sin. And so we can be humbled by that, especially if there's a memory of a dream that goes along with it, that is particularly sensual, in its nature, and so he says that even those who are sick, so so physically weak, uh, that they have no interest or capacity uh, for this at all, find that it ha- happens because they might be judging somebody harshly. Pride, and so pride rideth before the fall, and so God can allow this to emerge simply as a reminder of the of the need. To humble oneself, that even again, where you think that you are beyond this physically because you're sick, or spiritually because you've engaged in the ascetic life, and none of these things have emerged for years. That if you fall into pride, then you can have this experience as a reminder uh, to of the need to to be ever vigilant until we are in the grave. Again, remember what St. Isaac said: there is no Sabbath for us in this world, in the spiritual battle. And so there is never a time where, uh, while we're still breathing, where we can let up in our vigilance in regards to our bodily
1: appetites. Any comments or questions on of anything from the evening?
0: This last one can be a hard one to wrap one's mind around uh, because it seems so removed, again, from conscious activity. And so it's a humbling thing to imagine that we are responsible for what is within the depths of our own unconscious imagination and memory. And so while we might know ourselves as being forgiven uh, for these sins we can still know the fruit of them and the uh, consequence of them throughout the course of our life that imagine, again imagination and memory are difficult things to purify even by the greatest ascetics all right why not we close there for the evening uh, and as always, with uh, the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks
1: be to God. Thank you all.